Hello and welcome to another edition of Henry Conversations. My name is Micah Watson. I have the privilege of directing the Paul Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And today I am really excited to welcome Dr. Anika Prother as our second guest this season. I want to tell you a little bit about her and then I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, Anika earned her BA from Howard University in elementary education, and she has a number of degrees, several graduate degrees in education from New York University and Howard University. She has a master's in liberal arts from St. John's College in Annapolis and a PhD in English theater and literacy education from the University of Maryland College Park. Her research focus is on building literacy with African-American students through engagement in the books of the canon. And she has a book already out called Living in the Constellation of the Canon, The Lived Experiences of African-American Students Reading Great Books Literature. And I actually have that in my office. She has another book coming out uh, with Classical Academic Press called The Black Classical Tradition and The Great Conversation. That's co-authored with Angel Parham. And she is teaching right now full-time at Howard University. And she also will be teaching at the University of Maryland this spring, a class called Teaching Blacks and Classics. Uh, She and her husband are the co-founders of the Living Water School, a unique Christian school for independent learning uh, based on educational philosophies of classical education and the Sudbury model. And her co-founder there is her husband, Damon Prather, uh, an engineer. And I also, am I right in thinking that he has spent some time here in Michigan, if he's got a Michigan State degree? Is, is that right? born and raised in Michigan. We go to Michigan at least twice a year. So we're on our way up there for Thanksgiving. So well, Thanksgiving will be there like oh. from back Sunday to Sunday or Saturday. And that's a tradition. It will be there back in the summer. So yeah, I was, okay. when, I, when I heard where you were from, I was like, oh, I got to tell them I'm going to be there soon. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Anika, thank you for joining us for a Henry conversation. And now that I know that you have these Michigan ties, I think yeah. um, we, we hope to get you here in person oh, on campus great. at some point as well. Yeah. So thank you and welcome. Yeah, thank you. Well, tell us a little bit about your story. Um, okay. How did you come to to know and love the classics? Can you tell us a little bit how you, you come to be in the position you are where you are? You're really an ambassador for the classics in, in many ways, I think. Wow. Now, I'm so shocked that I'm even here <laughs> in this space because there was a big resistance on my part. I, I, I give all honor and credit to my mom and my dad. I was raised, um, They I tell them today that they probably worked they would have loved classical education if they knew about it back when I was growing up because we always had to read something from the canon, C.S. Lewis or Tolkien or um, just, you know, all the different ones. I remember as a little, little girl, my mom saying, you're reading all of Laura Ingalls Wilder's books. And, but then we also read the text of our narrative, you know, from Roots to Autobiography of Malcolm X and, and so on. And uh, Autobiography of Frederick Douglass or, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And so we just kind of, my parents kept me in both worlds. Well, after I graduated from college and I was getting ready to start my master's in theater education at NYU, my mom and dad went with me to look for an apartment in New York. And we stopped at this little Christian retreat center. And the retreat center had a small brochure that says, would you like to start a classical school? And my mom, I don't know why this thing caught her attention, but she snatches it up. She spends the whole weekend just reading the brochure and talking with my dad. Before we came back from New York, they had decided to start a classical school. Okay. 
in a predominantly black neighborhood, predominantly black students. And uh, it was really interesting because the uniforms were kente cloth vests and ties, but we were reading Socrates and Shakespeare and things like that. But then also reading books from the black canon as well and just getting them to see how it all fits together. When they first decided to start this classical school, I thought they were crazy. I thought they had, I, you know, I grew up going to predominantly white Christian schools. And so I came out of Howard pretty adamant about if I'm ever going to be in a school, I want to teach about our heritage and that they, that our children should be immersed in that. My parents had a much wiser and broader vision for education, of course. And so um, long story short, I left the public school system just because I saw too many conflicts in my faith and I wanted to honor the laws of the land, respect people's beliefs in a public setting, and thankful that we are constitutionally allowed to have Christian schools in our wonderful country. So I said, I'm going to go teach in a Christian school where I can freely share my faith. And, uh, and so I left just, I left to work in their school that they were opening um, when they decided to open it for that reason, even though I didn't agree with the philosophy. Okay. So I came on just to teach music and drama and accidentally stumbled into a great books class that another teacher was working with and the students were struggling to engage in the literature. And I said, well, let me help you. I'll co-teach with you. I'll make up some creative drama lessons because that was my master's project was to show how to use drama in the classroom. And next thing you know, I just, I'm probably after the first book we worked through, I was addicted like <laughs> instantly. And I found when you read about this in other stories, it's as soon as you get someone to read them, they almost are instantly enlightening. And that's what happened for me. And from there, I just, it's just, just I want more. I want more. Then I was like, I got to study this. You know, I want a degree in this, even though I already had others, but and it just kind of continued to grow and has not died since. Yeah. Well, so many interesting things there. Something you may not know about Calvin, Calvin's associated with a, a Dutch Reformed Christian denomination that has always put a, an enormous emphasis on Christian education to the mm-hmm. point where one of our, our you know sister denomination, one of the big differences is one denomination believes in public schooling and the, and the other believes very strongly in Christian schooling, to the extent that until a couple of years ago, to be a faculty member at Calvin, you were required to commit to send your child to a Christian oh, wow. school. Okay. Um, so, so I think a lot of our uh, our listeners will resonate with that conviction yeah. that you came to. And there is something yeah. about being able to be your whole self, right, yes. in, the, in the classroom, which is great. Yeah. Well, you touched on this a little bit. Um, there can be uh, a stereotype about the classics. People hear classics or they hear Shakespeare and Plato or, or Dante or these different mm-hmm. names, and they think... They think the uh, the bust of the, the the very white marble heads of yeah. these old white guys, right? Yeah. Or they think that this is somehow elitist or yeah. or set apart. And certainly, I'm sure it has been yeah. as practiced in terms of education. Um, but you you break up that stereotype, and I'm yeah. wondering if you could speak a little bit to that because clearly, people that are that are following you on Twitter that are that are interested in hearing what you have to say, different conferences, whether they're from the, the African American uh, tradition, or they're from any the better worse, yeah, any tradition. Any tradition. Um, you seem to have hit on something. Can you speak a little bit to that? That busting yeah. up of the stereotypes. Yeah, I think what and it started with me trying to make classical education even more relevant to the students I was teaching at my parents' school. I had figured out how to use music and drama and hip hop. I remember I did a lesson where we listened to some music from Lauren Hill 
and connected it to, oh gosh, I wish I could remember what text it was, a work of the candidates. I have it written down. I took notes the whole time, but I don't have it in front of me. If it pops in my head, I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember. But so I was doing that and that was working, but I could still feel a disconnect. And, um, and I, I knew the disconnect was because they still saw them as somebody else's literature. And I really wanted to figure out, and I didn't know enough about it. I was so new. I always tell people, if you like were raised to uh, to go to school classically, then you go and study classics. You just don't know how blessed you are. Um, I didn't really know the the universal connection until, and I really believe God it was an answer to prayer. I, I was just laying down, hanging out at my mom and dad's house. And I was laying down and I could look over to the right at my parents' bookshelf and I saw Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk. Now, I did not pick it because someone had said, hey, read that book so you can find out this answer to this question about how these books are relevant to black people. I just knew I you know, grew up knowing about, knowing about Du Bois and realized, oh my goodness, I haven't really read much from him. Let me read this book just leisurely. And the book falls open to this essay called of the training of black men where he talks extensively about the importance of classical education in the black community i mean he's talking about educating black men but he was kind of patriarchal but i ignore all that (laughs) and uh (laughs) but it opens it opens to the last page of the essay i read the whole essay but it opened up to the last page of the essay first which made me read the whole essay with the famous line, I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not, you know, across the color line, arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas, you know, we glide and, you know, I'm kind of saying it all over the place, but there was this kind of, I call it his opus to the canon. Reading the rest of the essay eventually, and then reading the rest of the book, I said, if he's feeling this way, somebody else feels this way. Right. And so from him, I was led to, Finally, even though I had known Frederick Douglass's story, had read it at Howard, this time we were studying it at the school my parents founded. And I, because my antennas were already up, I noticed the chapter on the Columbian orator. So I had just finished reading Du Bois, and here I am reading Frederick Douglass, who never had formal education, talking about how the texts of the ancients are what got him out of the despair he was in in slavery. Hmm. Then I, we, we finish the book. We go on a, a, a field trip to his house. I walk into the foyer and there's a bust of Cicero in <laughs> Frederick Douglass's house, you know? And then they, and the man says, and here's the library. And I'm seeing all these books that he loved all from the canon. And the man talks about how he would spend hours in his library reading the canon, you know, writing about it and practicing his rhetorical skills. Then I go into his parlor and there's a painting of Othello. And at that point I was like, okay, that's when I knew there was a black classical tradition. I just, I'm like, here we have an enslaved man from the South and, you know, Du Bois was never enslaved from the North. So that kind of gave me these bookends that made me realize that there was a black classical tradition. And so from that point on, I began to read black literature with new eyes. Mm -hmm. And for the first time I began to see classics interwoven throughout most black literature which led me to begin to do research on the people's education. Like how do they discover it? So it's, and it's almost like a obsession Well, now. And it's not just with black people. Now I'm sitting here wondering about, I think Squanto was classically educated, you know, like, so it's like all these little, like, cause if he was, you know, kept, you know, freed by the monk, Franciscan monks, 
And he, and they're from St. Francis of Assisi and they educated him and, you know, and, and then he was freed. I don't have any evidence of that, but I'm just giving you that as an example that it is about the black classical tradition, but I'm a little bit broader than that. It's about all of our tradition. It is a shared heritage. It seems most human stories connect to it, no matter what continent you're from, but America, because of its melting pot, um, nature, we all tend to intersect in the canon. No matter how much we try to ignore it, no matter how much we want to try to get rid of that truth, you can't really do anything about that. Yeah, even to criticize it, as I mean, it does come in for quite a bit of criticism. Um, I think about the the church father, uh, Tertullian, who said, what does Athens do with Jerusalem, right? And he's there, um, you know, and I think think it has quite a bit, but even even for him to ask that question, he's got to know the two, he's got to know Athens and Jerusalem to deposit the disjunction. Um, And I'm I'm thinking, you know, I I think I read an argument or an essay you made that it it would surely, within the African-American tradition, you wouldn't just teach the canon. You want to go yeah. further back, yes. right? Yes. But if you leave it out, then you actually are cutting off today's students yes. from their own inheritance yes. at, in the American African American tradition. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yes. I mean, it's it's um, and I want to deal with that a minute. Um, I haven't yet had a lot of people argue with me on that, but there's a resistance to wanting to state that or accept that. From within the tradition or externally? No, oh, okay. externally, within my own community, within okay. the black community, especially. Right. I And I understand why I was there, right? But the more I saw, but I think that's also um, connected to people fail to understand how much the classical tradition is in almost every piece of black literature. Hmm. All of the literature we love. I mean, you can't even say, well, I just love reading Marcus Garvey. He read classics. You know, you, you can say, well, you know, I'm Black Power, Black Panther. You know, they read classics. Mm, <laughs> you, right. you know, I love Angela Davis. Like, she's a soul sister. She spent quite a bit of time in Germany studying classically rooted philosophers. Mm. So you can't get away from it. Like, even if you, no matter what your relationship or emotions are about America or whatever you can't get away you can't even go to africa and get away from it there's nowhere you can go um and so once i came to that realization it wasn't um one thing i've tried to always explain to people it's not me trying to celebrate any one group's tradition it's not me trying to be an uncle tom which if you know me you know i'm the antithesis to that um it's not that I just want truth, you know, and as Mm -hmm. a Christian, God is a God of truth. And so I want a true narrative, you know, who am I? And so when I go back and I look at my ancestors and their connection to this canon and how the canon, and when I say, I want to clarify, when I, I like to make sure I clarify in case new people are listening to me. Sure. the, The canon is not classics. It includes classics. And so classics is the study of ancient greece and rome and then the canon starts there and goes forward i always say classics are the seed Mm -hmm. and then the canon becomes the tree trunk the branches the leaves the flowers it's a great metaphor yeah yeah and so it's all rooted in it but they and mortimer adler talks about this great conversation you can if you think about the great conversation you can see a tree because what happens is 
you have the seed or the beginning of that conversation. And then someone says, oh, well, let me build on or disagree with or talk about what you've said. And then someone comes after that person and says, well, oh, that's a good point. Oh, but I don't know if, know if I agree with that point. And let me build on what you've said. And it keeps going through the centuries and through all types of people. Right. Yeah. And so that's how the canon can the canon be expanded. Absolutely. But, you know, and so to that point, we can't get away from it. And so we need to study it because you really can't even understand most authors that we love from we can talk about Zora Neale Hurston. We can talk about Toni Morrison. People once called I've heard someone say refer to Toni Morrison as kind of like the spokesperson. She's the teller of our tales of black tales but she minored in classics. So, I mean, at Howard, so, you know, you can't get away from it. So, and so we study it to learn more about ourselves and where we've come from. Yeah. I'm so glad you made the distinction between classics and the canon. I can't claim at all to be a classic scholar. I have not done the languages and I dabble, but I do try and teach some of the canon. And I, yes, and I, I'm, and I think we're about the same. <laughs> I don't and know I Latin. Appreciate, yeah, I, and I appreciate that opportunity to do that. Yeah. Um, I've raised this question of this stereotype or criticism that that classics is is restricted to a certain type of people, and you've, I think, demolished that very strongly. There's another sort of, you mentioned your faith, and there are some of our brothers and sisters in, in Christ who will say, well, all I need is the Bible, right? And, and you can hear that across, you know, and, and why should I be you know, if I can learn the Bible better, why should I be messing with Plato or these okay. folks? And, um, you know, Augustine has this line he, about uh, reading, reading the learned pagans is like, is like stealing the Egyptians gold. You know, they, mm. when the when God commanded the, the Israelites to leave, to so take the gold of the Egyptians with him. And they, and obviously it would be consecrated to a better use, but right. I'm curious if you, do you ever run into that sort of this, this notion that the, almost the fear is, well, it's, it's pagan or it's not scripture and, and scripture is sufficient. And I, you can tell I'm, I'm, I think I'm with you on this, that yeah. Christians do well to read the canon, but what would you say yeah. to that sort of concern? I, I guess I could answer that in a larger way. I'm, I'm very um, resistant to limiting what we read as long as it's the true, you know, the good, the beautiful, the virtuous. I also found that um, a lot of texts illuminate scripture for us. I'm going to give you a good example so people can understand what I mean. Um, this is one in probably several. Okay, so let's say we don't want to read the philosophers, right? But if we're reading the story of when Paul goes to, he's in Greece somewhere, and he comes across these groups of philosophers, and they have this table that says, to the unknown God. Mm-hmm. And they sat around, and the scripture says they sat around, you know, wondering about this and that with basically never coming to any conclusions. And then Paul is able to tell them, I know the God you're you're seeking. When I read the philosophers, I kind of get a sense of who those people were and what their belief system was. Yeah. And so the way I see reading literature, especially the works of the canon, it's a, it's a tapestry. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the Bible is the great book, to, in my opinion. But it's, it fits into a, a part of a, a puzzle, a mosaic, a tapestry that tells all of the human stories. Um, and so, and, and honestly, the Bible itself reveals diversity. You know, hmm. it shows so many different people 
coming into the lineage of Jesus Christ. It shows so many different people coming to be a part of the children of Israel from Rahab and so on, right? And when a lot of times when we read the ancient texts, we get a sense of some of these ancient civilizations that the Bible talks about. And so I feel that we read scripture, of course, as our main text, our most, our source of inspiration and wisdom, but we read other stories in order to understand humanity even more because all of us have a different story of how we came to be who we are, how we came to the scripture, if we're Christian, how we came to be in the world. And I think our lack or sometimes the unwillingness of us to read other narratives is, is, is at the root of some of this racial division we have today hmm. because we don't know each other. And, and there's a refusal to know each other. And when I say that, I am I always tell people, I don't fuss at one people group, even though I love my people. I'm usually fuss. If you follow me long enough, you'll say, oh, she's fussing at everybody. She's mad at all of us. <laughs> because I need us all to listen to each other and to read and to study and to get a sense of who we're dealing with so that, um, and we may not come to a place of unity and complete harmony, but at least a place of of being able to dwell, as scripture says, to be at peace with all men right. in this space. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned, um, I guess, the Mars Hill address, Paul's mm-hmm. address in Athens, because mm-hmm. I think he, he thinks, I think he says, as one of your poets has said, yes. right, uh, we are his offspring. So yes. he draws on what would have been the classics for them in the service of the gospel. Yes. Um, so yes. I really like that. I mean, you prioritize a scripture is, is first, but it's not an either or. It can be a yeah. scripture first and then an and, um, which I think yeah. is a great way to think about it. So it, it's among colleges and universities, it seems like a, a rather tough time for uh, classics. It's a tough time overall for many private schools and Christian schools in particular. And, and yeah. I, I love being here at Calvin. Most of the time I am defending Calvin and his decisions, but I, last year we did cut our classics program and I still have a very hard time grappling with that. Uh, And I won't go on too much about it, but it's just a, it's just a terrible loss among some other really tough losses. Um, You are in the business, right? You are are teaching classics at at Howard uh, Mm -hmm. and you have this class uh, at the university of Maryland in the spring. What's your, what's your sense of the viability of classics as a discipline in higher ed? And, and maybe we could talk about, I mean, you're also, you're also in the business when it comes to, you know, pre-college education, yeah. right? Where you, yeah. you have feet in, in both places. Yeah. Help me. I, so if I'm, if I think this is really important yeah. and I'm worried about it, um, how can I be hopeful in this new season that we're in? I think the biggest thing is, um, okay, so because my husband says, babe, you're like, you teach, I'm every day I am teaching like for a second grade all the way up to college. Like that's every day. So I start out in the morning with my children the, at the living water school. And then I end up at Howard in the evening. But um, that experience though, is actually making it even more clear, which is why I'm probably more passionate now than I've ever been vocally is teaching in those two spaces. I see how the two connect mm-hmm. so clearly. I feel in, insecure sometimes because I know people are saying, well, you, where have you, where did you come from? You know, <laughs> but to prove my point and that I'm, I'm a, if I can make this make sense. I was talking to a former parent of my parents' school. His kids are in their twenties. I think their oldest is going to be about 30 years old. And he came to me and he says, your parents' school was amazing. He said, the way my children write and how successful they all are came from that classical school Hmm. his two oldest are cpas his youngest has his own business in the gaming industry and is doing very well and so 
he was just talking about how they communicate and how they write and how they reason. And it's like, seems so natural for them. When I did my dissertation and I researched his daughter was in his daughter and son were in that study I did for my dissertation there. They talked about how this constant practice of engaging in the great conversation gave this a natural ability to engage in conversation. Mm. And it was so intense that they said it made it hard for them to find dates (laughs) (laughs) because they couldn't find people to engage like that. And so with my feet being in both places, what I do feel is that the way K-12 education is done, the mainstream education is done, and the, the farther it's gotten away from the classical education, it becomes almost a machine that produces people that don't right. value classics. Right. And so there are less and less people being funneled into these departments. And it's also, and so what happens is these students grow up, they go into college, they stop valuing the old voices. Right. And and for some reason, they think the wisdom they have or the books they're reading or the uh, things they believe just popped up in the 2000s. Yeah, right. And they fail to understand that everything we believe and think connects back to classics in some way. If you follow, I say read back, if you follow it backwards, you will find a classic author or author of the canon way back. That again, that's that tree that sprouted forward to this way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so because we have a generation that does not understand that and, and universities probably I don't I don't get the feeling that universities are closing them with all that much joy, but it's a lot of times out of necessity. It's a business decision. And they have to if they see a department is not bringing in enough interest or or what have you then they have to make some very hard choices so i'm really excited about the classical k-12 classical renewal movement along with clt classical academic press i'm grateful that they have welcomed me into that space to fight for classical education to support classical schools so maybe we can conjure up and raise up a new generation that values it before all the departments <laughs> close. Yes. You know, I hope yeah. that answered your question, but yeah, I think it's rooted in K-12 education in a lot of ways. Well, that, no, I think that's helpful. I mean, in one sense, you're, I think, accurately painting, we have a pessimistic, at least short-term reality with higher education, but a more mm-hmm. hopeful foundation perhaps with, um, yeah, go ahead. And then one more thing. And I also, I think um, with that K-12 education issue, There's also the issue of classics, even humanities, even liberal arts, being presented in a way that says this is only for a certain group of people. Right. So in these tense times that we're in, uh, now, now this is the funny thing. I've heard some people say things like, oh, we've never been so divided as a country ever before. And I just say two words, Jim Crow. Right. Like, no, this is not new. (laughs) Um, Or or what it is is... um, it's not even been laying dormant. It's just the issues have been left unaddressed. And so it has culminated into this really uh, tense time that we're in. And, and, and so transfer that over to uh, classics departments, liberal arts, you know, schools or humanities programs, you go into them. There's not many people of color in the space. 
if you sit in the classes, look at what they're studying and what they're discussing, how they're triangulating that conversation, it doesn't include people of color, right. which which saddens me because there's so much room for us there. And when I say us, I don't mean just black people. I mean, any person um, of, co- of color that we can find our roots there and we need to be setting up our educational um especially those that are classics rooted or liberal arts or humanities where we're saying I mean, how can i say this we don't want to just say we don't want to just keep everything the same and say hey we're real, really nice to you we'll be right. kind to you we love you come talk to us about this and you never once see how this story or how this philosophy or how this text connects to that person where they are and where they're coming from. Okay. Yeah. And and if you never ever uh take the time to research how people of color in the past have connected to these texts so you can show them. And it's not hard because literally as soon as you show them the walls come down. And so that's the other piece is it's more than just being nice. It's more than just saying, hey, come to our school. We will be very nice to you. It's come. Not only is this meal for you, it is about you. Mm. Mm. And, and, and your people have found their place at this table. Let me show you how. Yeah. And until we do that across the board, we may not see much of a change as long as there's a fight against that. And sometimes the greatest scholar in classics or humanities or liberal arts, they, they feel threatened if they hear me say as if someone is trying to change that tradition. But, that, but the tradition is not rooted in just the West. Right. The tradition actually is a, a perfect example of where I'm so glad this is a Christian program because I speak <laughs> at different places. So I'm always concentrating. Okay, don't say that. Make uh, sure you, you're careful. You can be yourself here. So a perfect example is um, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. I feel like that's an example of, because I feel the Bible is a, is a classic text too. It's rooted in ancient Greece and Rome as well. And so the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, he is coming from Ethiopia, sent by Queen Candace. From Ethiopia, now I mapped that thing out. Right. That's not, that's not, that's not, uh, there's a, Virginia's just over the bridge a few minutes away from me. That's not me going over the Woodrow Wilson Bridge, you know? Right. The, so that's a trek. This Ethiopian eunuch travels all the way from Ethiopia, right, into Jerusalem. And when Philip comes to him, this Ethiopian, who was probably speaking something like, may have been speaking something like Amharic or what have you, is reading a Hebrew scroll, yeah. This is why I feel the Bible is so important to read as we're reading everything else, because it actually fills in a lot of holes in some of these classic texts, because the Bible talks so much about different things and geography and history and civilizations, and you can kind of get a sense. And so in the classic time period, in the ancient times, there was a sharing of knowledge. There was relationship. Now, it wasn't perfect. And see, I'm not saying there was no slavery or there was no no form of, I don't want to say there was racism because I don't know if they really had a concept of that back then. But there were some prejudices and things like that. And it was they definitely had its, its vices for sure. But the one thing you do see when you read scripture and a lot of the ancient texts is it doesn't seem to be this hang up about crossing lines and boundaries and continents and color lines. Right. Um, and to prove my point, when I look at this Herodotus, the, the Greek historian, I, I love, I say this a lot because it really is 
connects a lot to what I see in the Bible where people didn't mind going to other continents, other countries and learning from and sharing of knowledge and then writing about it and, and having no problem saying, I got this wisdom from the Egyptians or I got this wisdom from the Greeks or I got this wisdom from the Asians or, you know, the Babylonians. They didn't, they didn't hide that. But Herodotus, when he wrote the histories, I mapped this out with my Howard students. He didn't just sit in Greece and write it. Like he left Greece and he went to Africa. Yeah. He went to Asia, went to the Middle East. And then he came back and he listened to people tell their stories and he wrote them up and he, he didn't write it in a way as if to say one is inferior to the other. That you know, It's very different time. So that's the tradition, right? Yeah. That's really the tradition. This This thing we have here where we're saying we got to hold on to our tradition and it's about only a certain group of people. That's not really the tradition. Right. No, I'm so glad you said that. Last year I had on Susan McWilliams who teaches at Pomona and one of her books, she talks about, um, she gets into the etymology of, of political theory. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I don't know Greek, but, the, but theory is to see and, mm-hmm. and the first political theorists would travel to other places like Herodotus, Ooh, they would yes. check out other places and they would come back and say, yes. here's how they do it here. Here's yes. how they do it there. And so you're, I think you're exactly right. We, we wouldn't call it racism, but there's, there's certainly lines about the other. Yes, I think about yes, G- yes. Jesus meeting the, the Samaritan yes. woman at the well yes. and he, and he yes. crosses that yes. line. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I think you're right. There was a cross fertilization of ideas. That, I, that's I love that word. Pretty yeah. important. Yeah. Um, and, and you I'm, know, and I, yeah, I just wrote an article for, um, it was on the blog of the, Society of Classical Studies called Weaving Humanity Together. Mm. And I take a look at, I, I try to, and I'm a, I'm a fiber artist. I do, that's my stress management. So <laughs> I, I don't do it to sell. You're not going to see me at any fiber shows. I literally just do it in the privacy of my home and make blankets for people that I love. But I spin wool and I, I ship in wool from all different farmers all over the United States and spin it just for my own pleasure. Where am I going with that? Um, so I'm really into fiber arts, the history of fiber arts. I've, I've um, there's this really great book called the fabric of fabric of civilization. I love it um, by Virginia Postrel, I think is her name. And she, she talks about how there was the sharing of wisdom of how to weave and spin yarn. Hmm. And there's a there's a process I use now that's a very ancient form of spinning yarn where it's not on a spinning wheel. I have a spinning wheel, but I use a drop spindle. And sometimes I just do it while my kids are in the playroom and I just sit there with them, pull up some wool out of my wool basket and I spin the, the spindle and it spins a long, thin line of yarn. Well, there is an ancient um, artifact where it shows a picture of someone doing that in Egypt, mm. but also in Greece. And then, and so I began to notice this being into classics like this, I began to notice, or, and then I've took another picture of somebody weaving fabric. And I noticed that this person over in say in Asia or whatever, it looks very similar to the way they do kente cloth in, in, in Africa. And so from that, I, I wrote this article where I go into the history of fabric and spinning wool and I use it as a way to prove how we shared, or you said a cross-pollination of knowledge. But I'm doing it through through the fiber arts. It's just an example, a tangible example right. of, um, or, or like if you look at the Egyptian goddess Neith and the Greek goddess Athena, please, if somebody's listening to me and I got that wrong, please don't hate me. <laughs> but they're very similar and they both, in addition to the other powers and things they do, they both are weavers. Mm-hmm. Okay. You see? Yeah. And so there's this sharing. Yeah. This is Egypt and Greece, you know? And so there's this sharing of that art wisdom. And so I feel like that's an example of what 
what life was like. I'm not trying to make it nostalgic and all, oh, everybody was just all one big happy family. I'm not saying that. But the relationship in that time was very different. And we've gotten away from that. And I want to get back to that tradition where we are sharing each other's stories, each other's wisdom, and creating new stories and and, and going through that process. Well, and that's something that comes across very clearly in your work is, is you are quite open about being a person of faith. You're a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you don't want to speak just to Christians. You, mm-hmm. you invite everyone to be part of the conversation. You think yeah. of classics as being for everyone. Yes. Can you say a little bit more about that? How, how yeah. does your, how does, has your faith impact your role um, with classics and, and not just for our, our own faith and not just for one's own ethnic background or well, it started uh, on a journey of comparing Socrates to Jesus or Jesus to Socrates. That's where my process came from. Um, I, I got this book at a classical conference years ago called If Socrates Met Jesus or If Jesus Met Socrates. And reading that book, I began to see these similarities in the way the two men taught and related to people. So let me just focus on my, my savior, though, for this. And so, But they just had this way of kind of walking through the town, and being in the space and welcoming, right? And so one of the main reasons Jesus was persecuted and made fun of is he was always eating with with the the tax collectors and sinners. And I always say that if Jesus was willing to let Judas follow him and didn't strike him with lightning, you know, it wasn't until the very end (laughs) that he says, go on and do what you were born to do. But all of that time leading up to the betrayal, Judas, the whole time Jesus knew, Jesus, he even let the man be the head of the treasury. You know, like, so <laughs> that just goes to show how Jesus wasn't, as I would say, he wasn't tripping off people. He was just like, let me love on you. I'm going to share the truth. I'm not going to hide who I am as the Messiah to make you feel comfortable. But right. I'm going to love you and I'm going to make you feel welcome in this space, whether you believe in me or not. And to prove that, Nicodemus was a part of the group of men who were his arch enemy. He was a Pharisee and he was so caught up in being a Pharisee that he's sneaking to talk to Jesus at night and being a Pharisee by day and doesn't come into the light boldly until after the death of Christ, right? Is when he's willing to come forward. And and what what is what does that make when I look at that relationship between Jesus and Nicodemus? And Jesus knew that Nicodemus was faking. He knew Nicodemus was being one way with the Pharisees and then sneaking and talking to him at night. Right. But evidently Jesus must have created such a welcoming space that told Nicodemus, no matter what you believe, you will be welcome here. No matter what you believe, I'm going to love you and I'm going to respect you. That was so, and the way he treated the Samaritan woman at the well. And I, I, I mean, there's, I mean, the man with leprosy, the demon possessed man, you know, Matthew, Right. Zacchaeus, everybody was rejecting Zacchaeus, you know, but Jesus, you know, the only people he rejected or got irritated with were the religious leaders, you know, <laughs> but, but, but people, he was like, and then he had the Socratic way of engaging in discussion, no force feeding, no saying he didn't spout all the time. You're going to hell because you don't believe, you know, and then my final example is how he related to the rich young ruler and how he just engaged in discussion with the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler finally realized the only way to be a disciple is to forsake everything you have and to follow Christ. He wasn't willing to give it up, right? Yeah. 
but he lets the rich young ruler go and it says and jesus in one of the gospels i think it says and jesus loved him he was, right. his heart was sorrowful because i get emotional just thinking about that and i feel like if we say we are christians and those first few letters of that word is christ we have to look like him and how we relate to people even in how we relate to people who believe look worship uh, differently than we do. And it's not that we're becoming uh, lukewarm. It's not that I think you can do that and boldly say what you believe, but you've got to respect and love people. And I feel like studying the canon, studying classics creates kind of like this buffer where if you're so worked up about what you believe that you just can't engage, pick up a book that you both enjoy and just talk about the book right? and see where that takes you. Yeah. Well, I know, I mean, you often say you hate politics, don't want to do politics. And, and I, and I totally get that, but this sounds like a bit of an antidote, right? Uh, for the, you know, we have people in our family or friends yes. and in this time of polarization, maybe uh, the classics is one way yeah. uh, to, to have a way to meet it. Let me, so this might be something is the book that you mentioned, Socrates meets Jesus history's greatest questioner confronts the uh, claims yes, of Christ. Yes. Yes. All right. Well then that's a, uh, that's by Peter Kreeft who I have to, okay. I just have to, is a Calvin grad. Uh, oh, wow. is at, I think Boston uh, college, but yeah, so that's a, there's a little oh, fun. Wow. Calvin, uh, I love that book. It's been a while since I've read it, but it did, that's when my journey to figure out how to do this thing differently came. It really sure. caused me to analyze uh, how Jesus teaches, how he relates to people. And the Jesus I thought I knew was different from what I was learning from that industry. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, we know he's a righteous judge, but he's just not doing that right now. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. um, we have, this time has, has flown by, at least for me. Let me, can I ask you two more questions? Sure. Um, can you tell us what are a couple of your favorite stories from from the canon or from classics and then and then two let's say someone has heard this from whatever background and they think gosh i i've heard this professor and she sounds so enthusiastic maybe i want to give this a shot okay. where where do we start them um so that, that those may overlap and maybe that your favorite okay. is where you start them but what are yeah. what are some of your favorite sources or stories or books from the canon and then for the person who might think you know i i'm intrigued by this yeah. what what should they pick up Okay, so let me start off with one that you may not want to start with him because when I first got introduced to him, I hated him, but I am so in love with him. Aristotle is probably my favorite. Oh, okay. Um, and he's my favorite um, because of the way he goes about learning. And, and, and when I read what he writes, the way he just breaks apart every... It's like he focuses on something like, say, parts of animals or the theater and he breaks it down and he's analyzing. Okay, let's talk about if he's, if we're talking about the poetics, for example, and the way he breaks down theater. And because um, I, I use that formula, I used to write plays back many years ago, and I would use that formula to write plays, and the formula really works. It does lead to a catharsis. Like it really makes people, I have done plays, and they were always done through my church. I wasn't famous from them, but, and the play, I would follow that formula, and sure enough, I'd end up with a whole room of people just crying and wailing. And, you know, it was like, wow, this thing with people coming down to get saved. And it really does lead to a catharsis. But he, he not only analyzed how the theater itself is set up, but he was able to analyze it so deeply that he's able to see how what's going on the stage should be affecting the audience. 
Okay. So that same process he goes through to break down theater, he does it with parts of animals and, and parts of animals has been very instrumental in building my own faith in Christ. Now he wasn't trying to pursue that there was a God. I knew that. I know that, but he did recognize there's something bigger than myself than all these little Greek gods all over the place. There's something else going on. You know, he called it the first cause or what have you, but he recognized that because living things, when he breaks them apart, parts of animals, and he sees one piece connected to another piece is leading to that animal's essential being. Hmm. It must be created for something. Now, he didn't say this, but then I'm reading that. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Isn't that? Oh, that's God. Oh, that's a <laughs> that'll preach. Preach Aristotle. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Amen>. <laughs> and so I got really excited about that, even though I know he didn't come to know the Lord. But I'm saying that that built my faith, that there is a designer and oh my God, I know him and I'm in relationship with him and I know that designer. So that's Aristotle Um, for uh, another one, which has been symbolic of my life is Antigone. Um, So I love her. Now that would be a good place to start. Very easy read. Uh, Doesn't have so many sub stories. It's not as many sub stories as a lot of uh, Greek plays. And so it's pretty straightforward. Uh, but Antigone is wonderful for me and her, her importance in my life was resurrected as I was trying to convince Howard to not close its classics department, what it means to stand up for what's right at all costs. And, and I remember trying to decide, I just, when all that was going on, I was teaching Antigone mm-hmm. at Howard. And I felt that was very timely for me. Cause I was at the point of trying to decide, maybe I'll just finish the semester and just be quiet and, and not get involved. But, and, but I couldn't get rid of the importance of the classics department at Howard. And so I said, I may lose my job or I may burn a bridge where they'll never want me back there again if I speak up. And I love Howard. I love its leaders. I respect its leaders. I didn't want to look like I was dis- disrespecting them. I just wanted to say, hey, can you just let me beg you to let, please don't close it. Like, that's really what my attitude was. I understand why you have to, but can we find another way? Um, and so looking at the story of Antigone, and the truth she wanted to stand on, what she thought was right, that her brother, you know, deserved a a burial, you know, looking at the whole story of how that all went down. He did not deserve to just be left out there to be food for the birds. Uh, and then the other piece of the, just the control of of Creon and him just saying, you can't bury your brother. Like, who does that? You know, just to just to exert your authority, you know, it was a power struggle. But she stood to the point of losing her life. And so I came in contact with Antigone as a freshman, but she was really in college and she, you know, and I continue to stay close to her. She's always on my bookshelf. She's always close by. I'm always going back to her. But this time as I was teaching her, um, I recognized the power of standing firm on what you believe. And so I, I I just love Antigone. Yeah. (laughs) So um, I, this warms my heart. The, the class that I teach most, um, I start with Antigone. Oh. Um, so that you've given, you've, you've, I feel like I've, I've met a kindred spirit. So I am so glad yes. to hear you say that. Uh, and of course we do some yeah. Aristotle too, but, uh, yes. but I think there's something magical um, in, in that play. Well, yeah. where, where can people find out more about your work? I know Twitter would be a good place to go. Twitter. Um, I'm horrible with it, but I'm trying to get myself together. DrPrather.com, dr dot com. You can just kind of, sometimes I upload lists and there are reading lists there, but I, I'm getting ready to change my reading list because I really want to connect with the author bank that's at Classical Learning Test. For those of you all who are listening, if you go to the Classical Learning Test and click their author bank, 
that provides a great list of a diverse uh, amount of um, voices connected to the canon that I think you'll really enjoy reading and is a good place to start as well. Well, my guest today has been Dr. Anika Prother. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, those who are listening, for joining us for another Henry Conversation. Uh, We will have some more coming up later this year. Um, But until then, take care, and we'll see you next time.